This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. Hey, movie addicts, welcome to Cinema Fix, your stop for the purest, highest quality movie reviews on the block. I'm Andrew Johnson, and I'm joined today by my fellow dealer, Monica Castillo. Hello, Andrew. How are you doing today, Monica? I'm fine. There's no crime to be seen. <laughs> I know. I dressed up in my costume last night, went out, and ended all crime. Things are good now. All the crime? All the crime. Great. <laughs> Oh, this is part two of episode number 62 of Cinema Fix, focused on the movie Kick-Ass 2. So if you're looking for part one, uh, you're listening to the wrong file. Go away. We, we don't want you here. If this is your first time listening to the show, basically this is the program on Film Geek Radio devoted to discussion of mainstream blockbuster films. And each week we release an episode in two parts. The first part is a general spoiler-free discussion. And the second part, which you're listening to right now, is the more in-depth analysis of the film, complete with spoilers. And it's designed to be listened to after you've seen the movie. Again, this is part two, so if you don't want us to ruin kick-ass two for you stop listening now and go check out part one of this episode uh also just a quick warning today's episode may contain some profanity i usually bleep the more egregious curse words on the show just so we can stay family friendly but certain characters in kick-ass two have curse words in their names so i'm not even gonna bother bleeping that today it's just too much work so be aware if you're listening to this in the car or something and there are young children present we might be saying some pretty extreme things like a uh, melon farmer Let's just put it that way. Uh, Before we dive into things, though, I'm very privileged to introduce a special guest. He is a freelance film critic whose work has appeared in Esquire, The Village Voice, and RogerEbert.com. He began his career writing about comics for Comics Journal, which is a big reason we're really happy to have him on the show today. Simon Abrams, welcome to the program. Uh, Glad to be here, Andrew. Thank you for having me. Simon, on the RogerEbert.com website, it says that you are writing a book on the exploitation of blood and gore on film. Can you elaborate into what exactly that means? Are you just writing a book about your favorite violent movies? <laughs> no, um, the book is going to be about how you go from 1963 to present in, uh, in an attempt to basically show that like, the idea of torture porn, like the, this, that trend, current trends and the cyclical nature of way that like horror filmmakers and even non-horror filmmakers, guys like De Palma or William Friedkin or a lot of filmmakers that have become influential in big parts of mainstream filmmaking and uh, way movies are made, like Wes Craven, like these guys, the way that they use violence over the years and using specific examples, like it comes from somewhere. So it's kind of kind of be part biographical, part analytical. Uh, so it's like right now I started with Blood Feast, which is um, now 50 years old, actually. Um, it's the film that is widely acknowledged as the first movie that, like, it's called the first splatter film or the first gore film, depending on whatever silly term you want to use. But basically it's the first movie where the filmmaker and the explicit thing that these guys are selling is just gore and is violence. That's the... That's the hook. So, like, from there, I, I kind of just wanted to write a book where it's like, well, this this stuff and the exploitation of violence on film, like, the explicit use of it, there's a history to it. And there's a whole trend that leads to 
even stuff like Kick-Ass 2. Well, I was just about to get to that. Kick-Ass 2 may fall uh, under that description. But before we really dive into things, here is a clip from the film. You know what? Screw this. My superpower is that I'm rich. Hey, you want to work for me, huh? You want to beat people up for me? Sure. All right. Let's get you a mask and a costume and we will call you Black Death. Whoa, whoa. You don't think that's just a little bit incredibly racist? I want you to put the word out that I'm willing to pay top dollar for every hired hitter in town. Come on, let's just talk about it first. Money talks. You wanted me to be my own man. This is what it looks like. All right, all right, I'll make some calls. Yes! Okay, Simon, you recently published uh, an article on RogerEbert.com titled, Your Subversive Comics Aren't Nearly as Subversive as You Think on Kick-Ass 2 and Other Pseudo-Adult Comic Book Provocations. And in this article, you, you, you really dive into this new subgenre of comics that are trying to be more mature, that are trying to be more adult, that are trying to be subversive, and, and, and you really discuss uh, a lot of the work by Mark Millar, who helped write Kick-Ass. And in your little section on Kick-Ass, you say, the problem with Kick-Ass and its attendant sequel is that Millar doesn't really want his reader to relate or sympathize with Lazuski, just smirk at their own reflection and revel in surface-deep satire. Can you elaborate on what exactly you mean by that? I I, I get the impression you're not a big fan of Kick-Ass and Kick-Ass 2. No, I'm not. um, I've been critical of Kick-Ass and Mark Millar's Millar World uh, books for a little while now. When Kick-Ass was first collected as a graphic novel, I I I panned it in the Comics Journal, and then... When the movie came out, first movie came out, there was like a, a debate that we did amongst the journal writers where it's like, well, is the movie actually good? Is Kick-Ass worthwhile? And I, I of course, took the con side of the pro-con argument. And uh, when this came out, I feel like for me, because I do feel Jeff Wadlow, the guy that wrote and directed or adapted Kick-Ass 2, like he does do some things that, given the turgid source material, I, I kind of like. I didn't want to talk about that so much as where the ideas which are still inherently stupid in the film where they come from so for me the basic problem with kick-ass and kick-ass 2 is that essentially they are even more so in the comic than in the movie about power fantasies they reduce the idea of wanting to be a hero to the kind of psychosexual um escapism that is you know it is inherently uh part of superheroes but they make it to the point where, you know, he's making fun of the reader and winking at them for basically wanting stuff that he's pandering to and catering to their expectations. It's the kind of thing that you can do it well and you can aggressively confront the reader. That's not necessarily or inherently the problem with these books. It's that you have stuff that is developed so poorly and so nakedly designed to shock and provoke you that it doesn't even consider or follow through on a lot of the ideas. Like, for instance, in Kick-Ass 2, there's a lot of references to nerds lusting after stuff like Adam Hughes' pinup art or Aunt May from Spider-Man. And it's like, all right, what about it? Like, what what is what is so interesting about that? At least in the movie, you get a subplot that's not in the book where Dave Lazuski, who is becomes the superhero Kick-Ass, has like a romantic relationship with 
a fellow self-styled superhero. That's not in the comic at all. And for that reason, I, I at least admire that Wadlow followed through on like some ideas that Millar just sort of drops. There's a lot of attempts to, to needle the reader. There's like jokes about Rihanna, uh, as one character says that he's, he got, uh, he's getting beaten up as badly as Rihanna on a, a quiet night in. And there's stuff like characters getting bit in the crotch by dogs and bloods, blood shooting out of their crotch for that. Or there's a rape scene, which is implied in the comic because, you know, there's some scenes of violence that are and aren't, you know, it's supposed to be funny, gross, or just gross and, it just it gets to the point where he tries really hard to do something, and I, I just don't think he pulls it off, which is my problem. And I get why people are pissed off at the movie, and I totally and I, I sympathize to a point, but I find that the comics are much more frustrating because at one point they did have an argument, and it was specific to like the insular comic book related culture that they come from. You know, that's really interesting. Um, so with those. Criticisms of the comic also apply to to the movies. Monica and I just recorded part one of our review of Kick-Ass 2, and we both didn't care for the movie. But I actually really like the first Kick-Ass film. Okay. And I don't I, – I agree with you. I think as a deconstruction of the genre, it doesn't really hold up, but I, I like it for, for other reasons. Do you feel like the – movies are equally as muddled as the comic or worse or better well okay first of all it's not really like that's the thing it's not really interested in deconstruction which is kind of my problem like there there's like a history of comics like watchmen and the dark knight returns that right. actively take types character types rather than genres and they sort of break them down in an attempt to like get out of truth like the idea that batman would inherently be a fascist and there's even precedent before that in stuff like howard chaikin's black hawk or howard chaikin's uh shit what did he do he did a couple other things that basically preceded that uh howard chaikin's the shadow that was some pretty cool stuff but basically you get to kick ass and the comics are essentially trying to impress upon you the idea that, like, oh, if this were in real life, the blood would be more extreme. This character would be basically a stalker. There would be rape fantasies. There would be all this icky stuff that we don't, as readers, want to admit that we think of, too. And the thing of it is, for that kind of provocation to work, I have to believe that, like, these aren't just, you know, ideas that are attached to, you know, stick figure characters or characters that are going to make a Rihanna joke or do stuff like that. But in terms of the movies, um, I feel like they're not so much interested in the idea of that, that idea. Like, they take some of the ideas. I think I actually thought parts of the, the first movie were, were done better in the second one in the sense that, like, the tone is a bit smoothed out. It's more consistently campy. Like, the Nicolas Cage performance in the first one I thought was absolutely a reference or influenced by Adam West's Batman like, I think right. you're, you're definitely looking at someone that likes the idea of playing this character that is so deranged that he's, you know, talking haltingly, almost as if he's playing a part. And, like, I love, I, I like that, but I think what I prefer about Kick-Ass 2, which I don't even like that much. I have, I'd give it a middling review if I had to review it, but the thing is, like, it basically is after a fashion thoughtful. Like, for instance, if you look at one of his best buddies in that film is taking his name and his basically just ripping off kick-ass he calls himself the ass kicker and he's wearing like a 
basically an outfit that's an inverse version of Kickass's costume. Um, so instead of being green and yellow, it's yellow and green. That's not in the comic. In the comic, he just takes his name and then he's basically forgotten for the rest of the book. In the movie, at least, he's a character, he's a supporting character, they do something with him, and they make his costume, like, basically a reversal of that. And the same thing with, like, Mother Russia. There isn't, like, that obnoxious... There isn't an obnoxious line in the movie, like there is in the comic, where this character is like, well, I'm only dressing up like a supervillain because I get paid a lot, so I get paid to hurt people. And isn't that great? Aren't you glad that you know that this character is basically laughing at the fact that, you know, she's fulfilling some nerd's fantasies of what it would be like to be a supervillain? It's like, well, not really. Like, what are you telling me beyond the fact that, like, people will do stupid and weird shit for money? Like, I, I honestly don't see this as anything more than, like, a needling attempt to, to say anything. Like, it's just really not funny, not satirical. It just, it barely passes as satirical. It's just kind of, oh, that that's where a joke should go. I get that. Nice. <laughs> well, to keep the focus on, on the movie, I, I'm getting the impression, it sounds like you liked Kick-Ass 2, the movie, better than the first Kick-Ass <laughs> Absolutely. Really? Wow. I, I, don't, I do not understand that, but okay. Yeah, I mean, for me, like, Kick-Ass 2 is just, I get the sense that they were like, all right, what worked in the first Kick-Ass film? And it was basically the idea that, like, the Adam West performance of Nick Cage, like, the idea that there is something inherently ludicrous about this world. So, like, the stuff about Mindy and her attempt to fit into the high school, none of that's in the comic. And that I find kind of weird and funny. But, like, if you are trying to make and adapt a story that's inherently weird and funny and achy, you got to at least have the balls to fall through on it. And I, what I like about Wild Love is that basically all that stuff about, like, how girls go weak at the knees at the thought of Justin Bieber or that kind of, like, boy band or um, they, all they really want is to be popular and superficial and all these, like, terrible, really just awful cliches about, like, what it means to be a teen girl. Like, that's not in the comic, but, like, I got to admit, the fact that, like, they tried to do something like that, I actually kind of like. I like the fact that they were they were thinking far enough. It's like, well, rather than basically drop this character off and don't do anything with her, like they do in the comic, like they're just like, well, we actually have to make her a character. We actually have to make her do something. <laughs> She's kind of half of the film, and I think in that sense, I, I I do like it as an adaptation, but I just think it's it's just generally more thoughtful than a lot of people seem to be giving credit for. I guess there could be also something to be said about if you're not familiar with the source material. Like I saw that scene with Hit Girl trying to fit in as something that was really limiting for her character. So, I mean, probably better, yes, than if she just disappeared for over half the movie and then reappeared in the moment of need. But that just, it just sat weird with me. Because then it was that whole, like, oh, bullying's really bad. And then it switches over to revenge is good. <laughs> no, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Like, you have to understand, like, I totally agree with that. And I, I totally think that, like, the the joke about how she, like, almost seems to have, like an like, an orgasm just when she watches that, like, that video of uh, that boy band, like, that to me is just, it is hatefully sexist, almost even misogynistic, but, like, it it's, I, I guess I'm of two minds about Kick-Ass 2, which is why I wouldn't really, like, if I had to give it, like, a grade, school grade, I'd give it, like, a, a C plus, maybe? I don't know. Like, I just, I I think that basically it's 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 stupid. It's, it's still a very stupid and ugly story. And I totally, like, the thing of it is, like, it, 
it still has that weird, wild tone shifts, but I think superficially, at least, it's kind of more consistent. Like, I feel like even if it doesn't make sense beyond, like, a point, like, why why is it okay for this to be happening? What does this say about anything if it's not, like, if this isn't, like, basically the world according to Hit Girl, this is actually the world according to Kick-Ass the film and its creators, what the fuck is the point beyond, like, nihilistically pointing out, like, oh, yeah, girls, what's their deal? Like, I don't, I don't, <laughs> I totally agree on that part. <laughs> yeah, that whole subplot, and, and, I mean, I'm speaking to someone who has not read the comics, so I can't really compare what happens in the movie with what happens in the comics, but j- just going by what's on screen, I just, I, I, I felt like that subplot with Mindy trying to fit in at school and becoming the popular girl, I just felt like it really ultimately went nowhere. Mm. Um, the the interesting thing to me about Hit Girl in the first movie was that it brought up all these really interesting ideas about violence and children and how, how people are socialized into believing certain things about violence and how they get that from their parents or the media, you know, et, et cetera, et cetera. In this movie, there's a scene at the beginning where her adoptive father, Marcus, basically tries to tell her, hey, you were raised by a psychopath. Yeah. You know, your your view of the world is just completely warped. And I was really hoping that they would try to to develop that more and really explore that conflict and but instead they just went down this whole route with her trying to fit in at school and and you know you mentioned the scene where she sees the music video or whatever and she has almost like this sexual awakening <laughs> and i thought well okay well that's an interesting development for 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 this character who's pretty much lived her whole life isolated from everyone else and then ultimately that doesn't go anywhere either. It was just very frustrating. No, yeah, like it's, it's basically the problem with the, the way that that plot line wraps up is that essentially the joke is that he creates one form of pseudo impairment for another kind of pseudo impairment. Instead of being like girl power and all this like stuff that's presented as like inherently and never, never really more than just vapid posturing of like the cheerleader culture, the idea of like makeup and all this other superficial details about being a girl like all that stuff is put down but at the same time like if you if they were to point to hit girl and say that like becoming a superhero or heroine is not necessarily any more empowering like i would at least respect it a little more for following through on the idea but at the same time, like, when she actually does become the person he, like, he, Dave Lazuski gives that speech where he says, like, you need to, like, do it in your way, be the person that you are, but, like, try to fit in that way. So she, like, she does that, uh, that stun gun type thing, and at the same time, we, we get off on it, so I guess the joke is technically on the viewer, but at that point, it's just like, okay, so congratulations, you've told me that I'm being... Uh, our expectations are being are either one form of, of shitty empowerment and or another, and one is preferable to the other. That's that's basically it. <laughs> but okay, are we supposed to get off on it though? Because I don't know, just having that whole subplot ultimately lead to a shit gag. Yeah, just, just, <laughs> I I was just like, really, really, this is what you're gonna do? It, 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 it's just and it's awful CGI, and it, I don't know. The, this whole movie just seems so horribly crafted to me that 
even if there was something interesting they were trying to to say there, it just didn't come through. Oh yeah, I agree. I I mean, Monica, I, I'm hugging the conversation. What do you think, Monica? <laughs> in terms of? Well, I mean, in terms of the the way that they they use it, like that, they kind of uh, they wrap things up with as. Andrew said, like, the, the shit joke and the idea that, like, they basically don't do anything except, you know, go for a cheap laugh. Yeah, again, just kind of pointed at how redundant that whole thing was, because she, Hit Girl's character ends up in the same place as she was before. It wasn't really any character growth other than, well, actually, that doesn't work out for me. But it was just, like, a weird Mean Girls skit in 15 or 25 minutes. No, yeah, I, I, I could see that. I, I guess that basically, for me... It just speaks to the level of, like, intellectual rigor that we're dealing with here. Like, Kick-Ass and Kick-Ass 2 weren't designed to be thoughtful or do anything more than just sort of, like, nudge you in the race and be like, hey, I know what you're thinking because I'm putting those thoughts in your head by leading you to think those thoughts. But at the same time, look, shit and vomit gags. Isn't that funny? And it's like, I don't know. See, I I would argue that the I think the first Kick-Ass movie... I think the way Matthew Vaughn directs that film, I, I think he is trying to do some interesting things with the material, and, and I, I think it could be appreciated on a little bit more of an intellectual level. But I also feel like all of the criticisms that were leveled against that film for being shocking or for not fo- following through on its satire or, or, or whatever, I, I feel like all of those criticisms, you could definitely apply them to the second film. Uh-huh. I don't know. It, it, it just really didn't work for me. There, there was one interesting aspect to this film, though, and, and Monica, I'd, I'd like to get your thoughts on this. The thing that I like most about the first film is that, to me, it, it ultimately captures this very idealistic, naive sense of, of what superheroes should be. And there's, there, there's this line that Dave says in the first film, um, with no power comes no responsibility, except that's not true. And and the whole movie seems to be about this kid coming to realize that he has a responsibility to the people around him to help them out. And the, the villains in Kick-Ass aren't just Chris D'Amico's dad. They're the people that stand by and do nothing. They're the villains as well. We, you know, when I think of the superhero genre, when I think of some someone like Superman, for example, that's the kind of pure idealism I, I want to see. And to me, the original Kick-Ass captures that much better than most modern-day superhero films. <laughs> and in the second film, they kind of try to follow up with that. And, you know, he joins this superhero team, this team of vigilantes, and they, it, it almost becomes this allegory for activism in a weird way, where these are people that are coming together to try to, to, to change the world and, and make it a better place. You've got Colonel Stars and Stripes, who seems like someone out of the Tea Party. You've got a family whose kid was missing or killed, so they're trying to make change for that reason. You've got a gay kid who's joined this group because he, he doesn't want to be in the closet anymore. I just think it's a really there's some really interesting stuff that they're playing with there. It just ultimately goes nowhere. Yeah, I would kind of agree with you there on that. There's, like, good ideas, and then there's no in-depth discussion or, like, exploration of what those topics and themes mean. Yeah, like, the, the, the first third of the film, I was actually really interested in where it was going because it seemed like it was setting up 
almost this 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 class war between this little grassroots superhero movement who are all trying to affect change for their own personal reasons. And then you had Chris D'Amico, who's, as he puts it, his power is that he's rich and he's just paying all the henchmen that he can find. And he's just getting them to do his dirty work. And at the end of the film, they even are a little bit on the nose with it. And he actually says, we are the real 1%. Well, I think at that point it's just directly taking from the Occupy movement <laughs> or referencing that. Well, yeah, right. But I thought that that the seeds of that were there throughout most of the movie, where you had this conflict between the quote unquote one percent and this more grassroots organization <laughs> of of sorts. And and sure, you know they're they're all there for their own different reasons, but they're all there because they want the the Justice Force wants to make the world a better place in their own way. The movie just doesn't know what to do with it, and it seems to equate inspiring social change with violence. Actually, I think when the murder of Captain Stars and Stripes happens, that's when it becomes a revenge story. They have to avenge him, and there's memory, and they have to get back. A lot of people consider leaving or quitting, and when stuff gets even more real, like when they hunt down Kick-Ass and they instead kill his father... Like, that's when it's too much. Then it's just, like, an escalation of violence. Yeah, the movie really can't decide how it wants to treat violence, because at first it seems like they treat it as this fun, empowering way uh, to stick it to the man, almost, and then it just becomes, like you said, a typical revenge plot. I mean, there, there's a moment in the film near the end where Dave says he doesn't want to go after uh, Red Mist, yeah. or excuse me, he doesn't want to go after the motherfucker. You're allowed to curse. You know, he says he doesn't he doesn't think that's the right thing to do. And then I can't remember what happens. He gets kidnapped and put in that van mm-hmm. or whatever. And there's that action scene. And then at the end, there's all suddenly like, OK, I guess we can go get revenge now. Yeah, that was after the funeral scene from his dad. And that's when he quit because he promised his dad he was not going to do that anymore. Right. But then he changes his mind again. And it, it just seemed like it was all over the place. So at the end of the film, you've got. These two characters that are basically after each other for the same reason. It's you killed my dad and you killed my dad. It just isn't interesting (laughs) to me. Unless, I don't know, maybe maybe they were trying to say something there. Like, hey, these quote-unquote heroes are ultimately acting in the same way as these villains. But it just felt really convoluted to me. I just want to point out, like, some of the things that, like, you were talking about, I found really interesting... The, uh, the idea of class warfare the, that they don't go into because, if anything, Millar has proven himself sort of consistently uninterested in um, that kind of ideas. Like, he, his, his use of stuff like how the heroes talk to each other through Facebook, and it's basically all surface detail because, like, for instance, the fact that the kid in the movie is gay, not in the comic. Um, the fact that, like, there is, like, instead there's a character that he introduces that, like, ferries drunk girls home to their apartments. Um, sort of like a human zip car, basically. The thing of it is, like, the same way that when someone confronted him about, like, what, what, like, don't you feel this is a bit reckless using rape um, as sort of like a punchline? The idea that, like, um, as in the movie, he, um, Red Mist and the motherfucker says, get ready to taste uh, evil dick or something. I, I can't get the exact quote, but... Um, yeah, something like that. The thing of it is, like, I don't know if it's more or less stupid of the filmmakers to basically not let the rape happen, but the fact is, like, they don't completely pull the punch, which is kind of stupid, but, like, the fact is they did pull it because in the comic, 
he does rape her, and he does confess that he wants to rape celebrities. He fantasizes about that. And the movie, they don't do that. They're like, yeah, that's a little too icky. So I guess, if anything, like, the movie is actually that much worse for knowing that, like, they do want to be icky, but they don't want to be too icky, you know? Like, they have it in mind, and they know that what they can do, but it is only basically a, sh- a slight sharpening of what was already muddled ideas. Like, um, for instance, in the, the comic, Dave's dad, he kills himself. He isn't murdered. He basically hangs himself in prison. There's There's all this stuff that it's like, well, that takes the... That makes it a little less neat. It makes it less of a even revenge story, like, you killed my dad. But, like, at the end of the, the comic, they basically are trading, like, stuff. And it's like, well, you're really gross for this reason. It's like, well, you stalked your high school girlfriend because she's not your girlfriend. Like, you just stalked that girl, and for whatever reason, she fell into your arms, which is one of the reasons why I was talking to this about uh, with an editor of mine. The first movie actually uh, suffers by comparison to Source Material because at least in the comic, you don't, he doesn't get the girl. Like, he has all that creepy stuff, but he gets rewarded with the girl in the end. Whereas this one, there is the idea that, like, there's never been a time after having uh, the kick-ass costume where he doesn't get laid. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that he doesn't really push the boundaries or really comments on what could be seen as social commentary after a point. Because I think for, for him, it's just, you know, a way to dress up a very basic sort of revenge story. It is a revenge story. Uh, through and through. It is. It starts that way, and I, I think he sort of just only teasingly complicates it. That, that's interesting. The stuff you're saying, you're making me appreciate Jeff Wadlow <laughs> a little bit more. You're making me feel like, okay, well, maybe he tried to do some interesting things with the movie. I, I still think the movie yeah, yeah. is a disaster, <laughs> but uh, you're, you're making me think that, okay, maybe maybe it's not as bad as the comic. Oh, man, the comic is bad. Let me tell you, really bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, you you brought up how there was some stuff in the comic that was different in in the film, uh, specifically that rape scene that that was in the comic, but not in the movie. Do you feel like yeah. the filmmakers were intentionally trying to to say something by making that omission, or do you think that was just probably I don't know studio pressure or something because it, it's safer? That's a good question. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, Millar is actually someone that has a good relationship with... Uh, what's the studio that put this out? This was um, Fox? Um, um, let me check. I want to say it's Fox, but I'm not sure. But basically, he has a good relationship with whatever studio... Or maybe it was Lionsgate. Lionsgate. Lionsgate is the one who put out the first Kick-Ass. And did they put out the second one? This one was Plan B and Marv, and distributed by Universal. Oh. Okay, so he basically, he has Hollywood connections. You know, Wanted was out there, Kick-Ass, Kick-Ass 2, and I think they're already working on another one of his Millar, wor- uh, Millar World books, um, either Nemesis or something. You know, he, he's, he's got connections. So while I believe that he's enough of a fuckhead to think that, like, oh, I can get away with something this silly, I don't want to change my stupid joke, because that would mean that, like, being un-PC for its own sake isn't a worthy enough goal. Like, stop trying to censor me. Like, I'm sure, like, it was on some level of compromise. I'm sure someone along the way thought that, like, totally cutting out that joke, just like, for instance, um, Captain's, uh, Captain Stars and Stripes, he dies much more gruesomely in the comic. You see his dog is beheaded. Like, they even say, should we kill the dog? He's like, no, we're not that, we're not that evil. Um, but they, they kill the dog, they kill the guy, 
They take the guy's head off. They take the dog's head and put it on the guy's corpse. That's not in the movie. So I at least appreciate that they were like, yeah, we should skip that part. But like at the same time, like why include it in the first place? Like if you if you wanted to buy and read into the film, which I don't really want to praise it too much, you could say that it's like basically an alternate reality version of the comic. Like what the way that the, the comic was trying to present an alternate reality to superheroes, like what would a reverse side of superhero genre be? Like what would the real world version of superheroes be? And what's only realistic if compared to comics but like then you do the movies which is a more realistic version of the comics but at the same time i don't want to give him that much credit he's not that smart and <laughs> these aren't that consistent tonally they warrant that kind of reading but well it, it, it's, it's just weird to me that you know they would shy away from you know killing the dog or having this big rape scene but then they'll have a scene like uh, like with what happens with mother russia uh where she's huh. basically just given this whole scene to kill policemen in really gruesome ways and it's presented as like this fun cool way like haha enjoy this violence and it, it just it, it doesn't seem clear to me like are they putting this out there saying yeah this is cool enjoy it or are they trying to take a step back back and not be as extreme as they could and and well that's actually that's actually in the book and what i i have to admit i laughed at that scene because it wasn't just like a placeholder for where a joke should be it was actually funny because the music that they use in that scene was basically like a weird techno version of the tetris music <laughs> right. i find that funny like i like the idea that a russian character has the do 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 like i just i find that that's that's cute it's, i won't i won't go to bat for it's not like you know, like, oh, wow, that took some real wit and intelligence to do, but yeah, I left. <laughs> well, you, you bring up an interesting point about the music, because I also think that music was used in a really interesting way in, in the first film. And in this film, most of the time, I couldn't figure out what the point was or, or why they would choose the music that they did. Like, there's the, the, the first scene where the Justice Force go and they beat up that Korean gangster... And during that action scene, they're playing When the Saints Go Marching In. Yeah, yeah. And I was just kind of like, okay, what's what's going on here? Why that song? Why set this really gleeful arrangement of it to all this violence? Are you trying to say something? I'm not sure. I can't figure it out. And the fact that also Colonel Stars and Stripes was a gangster, but now he's a born-again Christian, I thought, okay, that's interesting. Ripe for satire. Let's Let's explore that some more. But... They just they, – they don't really do anything with it. They just – they throw it out there and they say, here it is, but then they don't explore it at all. Well, I I mean, again, if we were going to be playing devil's advocate, which, again, I kind of don't want to, but <laughs> I have, I'm, I'm compelled to do it. I, I would say that, honestly, like, it isn't that different than the way that in the first Kick-Ass movie, uh, Nick Cage's character, Big Daddy – doesn't he get blown up with uh, God Bless America happening in the background? Isn't that the song cue? I mean, I could be wrong, but I just... I don't think so. I don't remember that. I just I just saw it again a few days ago, and I, I don't remember that happening. It could it could be there, but if, if that's the case, then I missed it. Well, um, Big Daddy is burned alive. It's right. Chris D'Amico's dad that's blown apart. I think that's the one with the God Bless America one. Because it's oh, really yeah, upbeat, yeah. because we, that's when Kick-Ass hits him with a bazooka as he's about to, like, kill Hit Girl. Okay, so that that part I didn't imagine. I guess I would just see that as, like, that same kind of bratty humor. I don't know. I mean, I, I could I could see why it 
was confused in the second one. I, I just don't, I guess I just don't see a substantial leap between the two films. That, that, that's fair. I think I may just feel a lot worse about the second film just because I, it feels very muddled to me. And it, it just feels like an ugly movie that's not very well crafted. I mean, say what you will about the first movie. I think Matthew Vaughn, it, it seems like he knew what he wanted to do in that movie. And the action scenes, I think, are really well done. The, the, the scene you mentioned, Monica, where Big Daddy uh, dies... Uh-huh. And Hit Girl comes to sa- to save the day. I think that's probably one of the best edited action scenes of the past few years. I, I I absolutely love how that scene is crafted, and there's nothing like that in Kickass Two. There's nothing th- 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 just that that sense of energy that the first one had seemed completely gone, and it seemed like it was just trying to be this really cheap, ugly looking imitation of that, and it it just it didn't really pull me in at all i mean i can i could totally get i can get behind that like that scene actually is choreographed unlike a lot of modern action films like it's you know they took time to figure out how to make the characters move and on that level i actually kind of like it but i can see what you're saying like i, I feel like the the cinematography and the way that the shots were blocked were just kind of like a very watered down version of the wanted it like i think he has a better eye for capturing that kind of um, maybe not the look of a comic book, but at least the this the this like hyper color palette that you would want to think comic books look like. Because hell, if if colorists in comics consistently used as many primary colors as in that movie, I think people would get a seizure. It's just too much. <laughs> it's, it's still it's it's dramatic, eye catching, and it's you know it's actually you know kind of thoughtful and cool. Whereas the second one is just kind of trying to capture that, do the same thing, basically. Like, the van scene in Kick-Ass 2, the movie, like, that's totally just a, um, I mean, it's from the comic, but it's a, it's totally uh, an attempt to match the scene where Hit-Girl saves her dad in the first one. Right. Yeah. yeah. And and actually, that was, pro- I think that scene at the van was probably the best action scene in, the, in Kick-Ass 2. I was going to say, it was actually pretty clear. That and the Mother Russia one. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't great, but it was okay. And I don't know, just the thing with with the original Kick-Ass, I, I, I really do think that there's some interesting stuff going on in that movie, just about how so much of the focus is seems to just be on the idea of celebrity and achieving celebrity status. And, and, and I, I do think that Matthew Vaughn does try to draw some attention to the idea of violence in the media and on, on screen in Chris D'Amico's dad in his office, he's got all these paintings of guns around, and then during the execution scene, everyone runs to see the execution. Yeah, I was going to say, that was live broadcast, which I don't think would ever happen. <laughs> right. Like, th- 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 there are moments in the original Kick-Ass that made me feel like, okay, I'm not sure they're fully nailing the satire or the deconstruction here, but it seems like Matthew Vaughn has something he's trying to say, has something he he wants to put out there. And in the second movie, they would start down these interesting paths thematically, and then ultimately they would just kind of, they would just leave them behind and not do anything with them. And I just, it just left me very confused at the end. Like, what was the point? What am I supposed to take away from this? I mean, at the, at the end of the first movie, at the very least, I can take away, okay, this is a movie about how I'm supposed to be a good person and take care of my fellow man. <laughs> you know, I did not get anything like that from the second movie. Yeah, I mean, I think the chief crime of Kick-Ass 2, the movie, is that essentially they realize 
It's like, oh shit, we have a mandate because we have a sequel here to basically just do the same thing of the first movie, except if anything, soften the edges of what made that movie so aggressively obnoxious. So it's it's just as obnoxious. It's just in smoothing out the humor of it. I think it's basically what's the word? Uh, pussified. Yeah, there we go. That's a good. Word. Oh boy. <laughs> It's weird because um, the first movie, I think, actually has a lot of really well-done beats involving some comedy and involving some gore. And in the second movie, everything seems too forced. Everything seems on the nose. It's, I'm the motherfucker, and I'm going to make this dick joke now, or I'm going to curse all the time, and we're going to have some crazy blood here and it just it just seemed really forced like like the filmmakers were just saying haha see how shocking we can be and as a result it wasn't really that shocking at all it was just kind of obnoxious well as we're finding out apparently that was the main focus of the uh comics just to be shocking. <laughs> maybe so maybe so i i don't know i think i think it works well in the first movie i mean i think it's telling that mark millar is a guy that ended the first wanted comic I don't know if there's been a sequel. I don't think so. But he ended the, the comic with um, a rant by the main character who is basically judging the um, readers for not wanting to be apathetic enough. They don't want to basically they – don't, they don't have the balls to be desensitized like him and to like follow their fantasies, their darkest fantasies of having no conscience and just you know actually going through with the idea of raping celebrities and – killing people without remorse or conscious like the idea is whatever immediately satisfies you like like that's what will make you actually powerful rather than you know an office drone fantasizing about being powerful and so like the comic ends with the guy looking right into like the big splash panel of this guy's sneering face and he's like this is my face when i'm fucking you in the ass and it's like um yeah that's you got me. I got zung. Like what? Like what? What am I supposed to take away from that? It's just like congratulations. You have cursed at me and made me belittled me. That's really that's some thoughtful shit there, man. Michael Haneke is on the line. He wants to work with you. Man, someone should probably check in on this guy. Make sure he's okay. <laughs> Can we get Michael Haneke to direct Kick Ass Three? Oh my god! I, I yeah, sign me up for that. I wow. love that. I think that's actually scary. Okay, the the last thing I want to ask you about, Simon, maybe you can explain this to me since you've read the comic. In the movie, there's a scene where the motherfucker goes to meet with his uncle, I think, played by Ian Glynn from Game of Thrones. Yeah. And that's when John Leguizamo dies, and Chris D'Amico is basically like, oh, you've shown me something important. You've shown me what true evil really is or, or something. I don't know. And then nothing happens after that. Like they, I was just trying to figure out what was the point of that scene. Like, I'm pretty sure if you cut that scene from the movie, it would not matter. Was that followed up on at all in the comic? I don't even think there's a scene like that. Let me just, I'm flipping through it right now. I have it right in front of me. I don't think that, the uncle is anything more than alluded to, or at least there's that, that scene isn't like, there is, first of all, there's no like butler character in the comic. Darn it, who else was going to tell him that all of his supervillains were named after ethnic stereotypes? Well, actually, that's not in the comic either. That part really? is entirely, like, there are no, like, there is no, like, Genghis, what, what was his name? Genghis? 
Oh, now I'm going to have to pull those names up. All I remember was Mother Russia. <laughs> there's Mother Russia. She's there. But there is no, like, there's no characters to it, which it's basically just a bunch of costume guys that at the end he pulls together to form an army. And, uh, I see, okay, there is a scene where he's briefly on the phone with his, I think his uncle's a cop, I guess? It's basically a very brief conversation, and the cop's like, we're not going to turn a blind eye to this shit anymore. He stop it, and he's like, whatever, I'm not going to stop, fuck you. And the way that it wraps up is that the uncle, as a cop, like, comes in, and he uh, he basically arrests everyone, supervillains and heroes alike. So in that sense, like, that was, like, the moment when Mark Millar remembers, like, oh, shit, yeah, I have to, like, in some way like do more than just basically provide the same old, same old kind of generic comic book i have to show you like but that's not how it would work in real life it would get arrested like <laughs> that's the moment where he remembers that it has to be like you know satire and actually say something about the shit that he's just fucking around with so i have some of those names if you're curious black death because he's black because he's black genghis carnage genghis carnage that was the one yeah i think the tumor was also one of them yeah because he's short yeah, and then uh, Mother Russia. Yeah, that one. That one's in the comic. Yeah, I don't see it. I don't see the the confrontation with the the guy beyond that. I, I thought there was something, but I guess that was just like a four panel thing. And so, if you if you were frustrated with Kickass Two, the movie, you'd probably be livid with Kickass Two, the comic. <laughs> Actually, put that on the title. <laughs> That's your quote on the poster. <laughs> On the poster, at least it's better than the comic. <laughs> it could be worse. You could read the comic. <laughs> yeah, really. You mentioned earlier, I, I hadn't realized this, but in, in the comic for the original Kick-Ass, he doesn't get the girl. And now, is, is that the same character that is raped in the second comic? Yes. In the second comic, it is uh, the girl in the movie that uh, he's actually dating and... Uh, what's his name? Uh, she finds out that he was cheating on her. Um, but by film's end, if I'm not mistaken, like the status quo was restored and everything is fine uh, between him and Hit Girl and everything. But the girl, the girl in the, the comic, at the end of the first one, he doesn't get with her. He, you know, it, it, they basically stay, they have a weird relationship, and she knows that he's kick-ass. Whereas in the movie, they're like, well, at least we'll give him a happy ending. Like, we'll give him the girl, which to me, I, I, I don't, doesn't make any sense to me, but okay. Well, it's, it's really weird to me that they would have that happen, and then they would immediately nix it and have her break up with him over some really stupid miscommunication about his relationship to Hit Girl. I just assume the movies, or the filmmakers just hated women. <laughs> well, yeah, that's, that's not, you're not wrong. <laughs> I mean, that was the entire vibe I got throughout. <laughs> I mean, comics culture in general has a women problem. That's, that's the thing. Like, It's not often I see it so overtly. They usually just omit women from the areas and then okay it's okay to talk serious and have good dialogue there's no ladies in the room but then this one it made him it made most of the characters seem shallow i didn't like the whole hit girl weird falls in love with a music video thing but then comes back to being hit girl and it's all okay it just felt like a waste of time no it, it's it's not a waste of time because now she's in love with kick ass oh that's right yes because uh every girl that's in a superhero movie has to fall in love with the superhero. And then the whole Mother Russia thing was kind of weird, but it was also like a little bit of that faux empowerment. The 
article that came out also this week uh, from the New Statesman um, about I hate strong women, and it's about how just there's these characters created, and the only adjective you can use to describe them is as strong, where that's not a problem you usually see with men. They're given, you know, more character depth, but really Mother Russia is just there to be, I guess, the antagonist for Hit Girl as her equal, but then that's it. Yeah, no, I mean, one of the things, I'm, I'm more distressed in comics when, like, a lot of guys, they, they make these characters that are basically, they're like Joss Whedon heroines to a point, but, like, without, like, some of the, the weakness and the sympathetic stuff that makes his characters more than just, like, Sarah Connors, basically, estrogen-powered robots. Like, they, they don't have much personality. All we know about them is terrible shit happened to them, and now they are, you know, She-Ra. They are yeah. invisible. They have breasts. If you change their gender, it wouldn't matter. Like, it's just the novelty is that, like, oh, shit, guys, look, she's got boobies and she can kill you. Like, that's amazing, but who cares? Like, it, that's, that, to me, is more troubling, and it's in, it's in Kick-Ass. Like, the idea that Hit Girl basically is... is it's, it's like the kind of empowerment that Zack Snyder was doing in, in Sucker Punch. Like, the idea is, it's like, it's like, well, this is empowering, but it's a kind of fetishism. And don't you like fetishism? Ooh, actually, I do. Look, fetishism is great. And that, that's, like, the, that's the problem with this. Yeah. Like, it sort of trails off like that because, like, it's just too afraid to actually do anything with those ideas. Like, like Sucker Punch. Sucker Punch was just like, yeah, we're going to give you exactly what you want because that's gross and it's kind of cool and too, oh, look, samurais. <laughs> Please tell me you're doing the DVD commentary for Sucker Punch. <laughs> it'd, be, it'd be more fun, certainly, than actually just... Watching it. I'll disagree with you slightly when it comes to Hit Girl. I feel like there there's, there is something about that character that makes her a little bit more interesting than your typical just violent woman hmm. character. And, and the fact that she is a child and she has been socialized into being this violent person, I, 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 I do think that Chloe Moretz actually does a really good job, at least in the first film, with with the role and, and kind of giving her a personality and a sense of humor. And and I, she does come across to me like a somewhat three-dimensional character, or, or at least a much more interesting character than we usually get in movies like this. And in the second movie, I was, I was really interested to see where they would take that whole idea of her trying to to be a quote-unquote popular girl or a a real woman and discovering she likes guys and she has to kind of learn to to balance these ideas that she's held about herself for a long time with these other ideas that the world is trying to impress upon her. And I think that would have been really interesting – but it really doesn't do anything with it. And I, I definitely think in Kick-Ass 2, she comes across of much more of just like a pretty stereotypical, two-dimensional, fetishistic character. Uh, well, okay. I mean, I can see why you'd say that. My point of comparison is I was watching, you know, you know the show Dexter? Yes. I actually do a weekly podcast about Dexter. Oh boy. Um, well, okay. I know, right? <laughs> I tried watching Dexter, the TV, the first season, and after the first five episodes, I got really tired of the character, not knowing what the books were about, whatever. I just, I hated the whole serial killer cliche of like, I have no feelings. I'm apathetic. I'm just trying to blend <laughs> in like you. Like, it was that kind of like, you know, implicating of society for basically allowing like this sociopath to get away with things as long as he has like a laundry list of things that make him look normal. I hate that shit. And I was just like, well, okay, maybe I'll just read the books and see what it's like. And the books 
are worse, I find. <laughs> I find that the first book was just, I was listening to an audiobook version, and I'm like, this is just awful writing and awful characterization, so at least that's where that comes from. But I appreciated the TV show that much more because there are actually supporting characters in the TV show. Like, the book is basically like, right. and then this one black colleague of mine showed up and I talked to him for a second, and that was it. It's just like, what? What? what is like that? Whereas in, like, the movie or the TV show, it's just basically like, yeah, we actually have to do something with that guy because he is on salary, he's a recurring character, and we have to do something with the story. And, like, I kind of like that they did that. So I guess in that sense, I really, in terms of just, like, comparing the the way that she's characterized in the movies, I don't really get the sense that it's anything more, like, I don't admire it more than beyond, like, a comparative level. I, I admire it just because it's there's more depth to it than the comic. I mean, otherwise, you're spot on. I mean, it's 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 very ill-conceived. It's There's not much more to it. And if you were to probably just watch the movies, ignoring the, the comics, like, yeah, I, I could totally see why you would say that, like, the transition from movie one to two is pretty damn um, depressing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, all I'll say about Dexter is that the first season does a little bit more with the character than what you described. But if you didn't like the first season, there's no reason you should keep watching. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> all right. Well, is is there anything else that either of you have to say about Kick-Ass 2? Eh, not really. <laughs> not really. I think we kicked Kick-Ass. Kick-Ass's ass? I don't know. <laughs> Done. <laughs> well, Simon, let me let me ask you. Um, I've heard that Mark Millar is planning on writing Kick-Ass Three. Oh, it's on stands right now. You can you can buy it if you want and use it as stuff to wrap your fish in. You could burn it. <laughs> you could wipe your ass with it. I don't know. What? Yeah, wipe wipe ass. There you go. <laughs> Have you read it? Uh, the third one? No. I um, okay. I will only read that if and when the movie comes out, just so I know what I'm talking about, and on the off chance that I actually, you know, like it. <laughs> okay. Well, normally, Simon, we, we like to end the show with a little segment called Reboot This. And Reboot This is a segment we do where we pitch either a prequel, sequel, or remake to the movie we just discussed. I'll, I'll start out off with Monica. And then, Simon, you can sort of get an idea of, of how it's done. Okay. Monica, if Plan B or Universal came to you and said, Jeff Wadlow is off the sequel, <laughs> or, you know, we want you to take this franchise forward, this film franchise forward, forget the comics, let's just talk about the films, what would you do with it? If, 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 would you make a prequel, sequel, or remake, and what would it be like? Wouldn't it be funny if they just remade the whole Kick-Ass series, all two of them, not <laughs> two years after the first one? Just remake the whole thing. New characters, new, new young actors, no faces. Let's keep going. Do it again. You mean just remake Kick-Ass 2? No, I thought both? it'd just be an interesting idea, since how much quicker are we going to get to remaking entire series, you know, the whole Spider-Man oh. thing. Especially since it's a superhero movie. you got to keep the rights. So you would do a reboot? A reboot only out of curiosity. Like, how would that even go? Um, I guess in seriousness, I would be more interested to see what happens to Hit Girl now that apparently she's a fugitive. I think that might be more interesting to see than whatever Kick-Ass himself is going to deal with. Because he's going to go off to college or something. I guess. I guess. Yeah. Kick-Ass in college. Yeah. Breaking up the frat parties. Well, Simon, if the studio came to you 
and put you in charge of the Kick-Ass series. They would regret it. Oh, sorry. (laughs) I'm sure they would regret it. But if they gave you an unlimited budget and said you can do whatever you want, would you make a prequel, sequel, or remake? How, How would you redeem this series if it can indeed be redeemed? Oh man, all this power is going to my head. Um, I would, <laughs> I, guess, I guess, for the sake of uh, providing something other than I would just burn everything. <laughs> uh, I would probably do a prequel with the Nicolas Cage character. Nice. Like it would be like Nicolas Cage's Holy Motors. Like it would be that was just one of a handful of characters because you know there was that article recently or that interview where Nicolas Cage was like, oh, of course I'm in on the joke. It's like, dude. You are as much in on the joke as most crazy people. Like I want, I want it to be Holy Motors with Nicolas Cage as a crazy person that thinks he's an actor and no one believes him. They have that subversive edge where it's like, is it real? Is it not? Like, is it is it like what it appears to be, or is it like a subversive takedown of art house norms? Like you could, oh my god, take and eat it too, and have Nicolas Cage. Running around, scaring people and eating flowers. Like I would, I would watch that movie. I would, I would fucking, if I had the money, I would make that movie. So you're saying let's turn, let's let's take this idea and turn it from a deconstruction of the superhero genre into a deconstruction of art house cinema. I was, yeah, and you should use deconstructing Nick Cage. Yes, exactly. It's not being John Malkovich. It's deconstructing Nick Cage. I think that's that's a good title for it. We we head to the Kickstarter right now. Let's do it. Deconstructing Daddy. Yeah, big, yeah, Deacon, oh, that's good. That's even better. <laughs> Played by Nick Cage. <laughs> that sounds phenomenal. Um, I think I would do something similar. I would do a prequel, except I would probably focus on Jim Carrey's character, Colonel Stars and Stripes. His tale of redemption. Do, yeah, do something about how he went from being a mobster to a born-again Christian and how he reconciles that with his love of violence. And... Since the second movie seemed like it was trying to be somewhat about grassroots movements and activism, I'd probably make it all an allegory for the Tea Party, somehow. Yeah. And it would be uh, Jim Carrey as Colonel Star, his transformation into Colonel Stars and Stripes, trying to uh, take down the system. And that's, I think that's that's what I would do with it. And I wouldn't just try to be shocking for the sake of it, because that's kind of dumb. I think that'll wrap it up for this episode of Cinema Fix. Don't forget to tune in next week when we will be discussing either your next or the world's end. Uh, we'd love to get your feedback on the show. You can email us at cinemafix at filmgeekradio.com or comment on the website at filmgeekradio.com. You can also subscribe to the show through iTunes. So if you like this episode, please write us a review. That would really help us get the word out about the program. You can also donate to us through the website. We really appreciate your help. And don't forget to check out other great shows on Film Geek Radio, including The Thin Place, Navigating the Newsroom, Avenging Angels, and The Nerdy Projectors. Simon, thanks so much for coming on the program today. It's been great having you on. Um, I'm so glad we had a guest on that has read the comics because I have to say, you're you're kind of making me appreciate the movie Kick-Ass 2 a little bit more now, which I did not expect going into this podcast. So thank you for coming on. Uh, thank you. It was fun. Where can people find more of your work? And, and also, since you, since you are into comics and, and you, you know a lot about this new genre of quote-unquote mature comics that have arisen, um, do you have any recommendations for for things you think people should check out that maybe uh, achieve what Kick-Ass tries to do and fails? The thing of it is, it's comics that are 
going for a mature audience are kind of sort of inherently exploitative and gross. So any recommendations I'm about to give you have to be given with a pinch of, you know, just understand with that, with that caveat in mind. Cause like there's a lot of really stupid stuff that is only mature in terms of like the fact that you will see tits as gore, rape, whatever. Well, well, are there any comics or, or graphic novels out there that present that sort of content in in, in in an appropriate and thematically interesting way that isn't just there for shock value? Well, I liked, um, and I recommended in my piece, Cross, which is the first story arc, at least, um, that Garth Ennis wrote and Jason Burroughs drew. Um, that's basically like a riff on survival horror. It's like, what, what would happen if The Walking Dead were written by somebody that were trying to, like, tell you that like staying alive is actually like there are consequences to it and they're not the kind of consequences that like in a couple of story arcs you can you know you can happily live with having no hand like rick does in the walking dead like these are actually stuff that like it's like you don't get the girl there is no cure the zombies are rapists they will try to cornhole you and gut you while doing it like it's the kind of thing where it's like it's very rude and very uh confrontational but it's successfully icky and it like there actually is a kind of daunting quality to the survival horror which i like um but let me think of something that i i didn't mention in the piece there's actually a comic that isn't nearly as uh gross or as overtly gross at least but it basically does what a more gross comic does but better so there's a comic called irredeemable and you're talking about the idealism of superman well, Irredeemable is a comic that it basically imagines, like, what if Superman was a homicidal maniac? What if he just snapped one day and he couldn't take the pressure of everyone asking him to do, like, to help them? And he basically went on a rampage, but he was basically, he never had a chance because he had abusive parents. He had, you know, he's just crazy and he's just like an ugly monster. Um, I don't really like that story because it doesn't really do anything uh, noteworthy with the fact that this guy is the Superman type character is basically a psychotic sexual deviant that has like omnipotent powers. I do, however, like a story called The Mighty, uh, which is um, it was a short lived series that DC Comics put out, you know, the same company that actually does and releases Superman. And it's basically about this special agent, a secret agent. I don't know if he's a secret agent, but basically a government agent that has to work as a liaison with a Superman-type character. And there's all these weird, creepy shit, and it's it's basically adult in that sense. Like it's it's got like violence, and it's I think there's some like some weird uh, pseudo subversive like sexy sex stuff, like intimations about rape, and I, it could be wrong about that, but basically it's adult in the sense that it's. The guy is, like, hyper-violent. He would, like, rip your spine out and shit like that. And I do like, however, that it is really atmospheric. It basically achieves the effect of, like, what if there were an evil Superman? What if, like, what 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 if the only person that could stop him was, like, the human guy? And, like, the, basically in that sense, like, you want a grim reality where superheroes are assholes and they aren't nearly as nice and idealistic as they seem... If you want that kind of story, basically read the Mighty. That's actually um, not bad because it doesn't it doesn't do much, but it is it is subversive enough. Maybe I don't know. Well, all right. Well, you heard it here, listeners. Those are two recommendations you should be sure to check out instead of Kick Ass and Kick Ass Two. Simon, where can people find you online? Where can they read more of your work? 
I am really bad about updating this blog, but uh, I keep or I aspire to keep all the writing that I do at extendedcut.blogspot.com. Um, there should be links to uh, outlets like The Voice, like if my author page or something like that, and Esquire, that kind of thing. But I actually haven't updated that place in a while. Um, but if you are interested in that, you can do that. Or I constantly link to my writing at my Twitter at twitter.com slash Simon Sabrams, uh, S-I-M-O-N-S-A-Y-B-R-A-M-S. Those, are, those would be the two places to find it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks again for coming on the show. Again, uh, that that article that Simon wrote about Kick-Ass 2 is called Your Subversive Comics Aren't Nearly As Subversive As You Think. You can find it at RogerEbert.com. Monica, where can people find you online? People can find me online on Twitter and Tumblr at MCastiMovies. That's M-C-A-S-T-I Movies. You can also find my work reposted on the Boston Online Film Critics Association website at BOFCA.com. As for me, you can find some of my writing at moviemezzanine.com and patheos.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at writerandrew. If you do follow me, be sure to send me a message and let me know you're a listener, and I will follow you back. That'll wrap it up for this episode. I'm Andrew Johnson. I'm Monica Castillo. And have fun this week getting high on cinema and doing your part to make the world a better place, even if that means dressing up like a superhero. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio! Yeah!